right, 10.30, are we good? Yes, awesome. Well, it's good to be here with you guys. We're in week two of our Here to There series, and I want to ask you, if you would, just to go ahead, grab your Bibles, or if you have a device with a Bible app on it, grab it, and let's go to Mark chapter 11 together. Mark chapter 11. Um, When I was a kid, I stayed in trouble. Um, I'm going to tell on myself this morning. Anybody identify that with that? Like, I was a kid who had a terrible temper, terrible attitude, smart aleck mouth, like bucked the parental system that existed in my home as often as I could. And if you're a parent that has a kid like that living in your house, just a heathen, rebellious, sinful little kid, let me encourage you and say there is hope, okay? God can change anybody's life, including your kids, and I'm living proof of that, okay? But listen, one of the things that kept me in trouble probably more than anything else was my love of terrorizing my kid brother. Like every chance I got, like I saw it as an opportunity to just ruin his life, right? And I took great joy in that. And so um, oftentimes my parents would just nail me down and I'd get in a lot of trouble, spankings, grounding, sent to the room because of that. And there's a couple of stories that my parents still love to tell to this day of things that I did to my little brother. And I'm gonna share one this morning. Now, I'll give you a warning, parents. If you have a kid in here, who's rebellious and mischievous, you may want to cover their ears for the next couple of minutes so they don't get any ideas, all right? Okay, uh, we're at Winn-Dixie one day, and I don't know what it was about the grocery store, but that's where we probably got in more trouble than any other place my mom took us. Like, I hated the grocery store uh, with a desperate passion, and so I did everything I possibly could within my power to make it a miserable experience for the entire family, okay? So, like at the grocery store, I'd try to push my brother into the mayonnaise displays, you know, I'd get carts and try and run him over, but there was one day, I'll never forget, we're at Winn-Dixie in Dallas, Georgia, and my mom is at the deli counter getting some lunch meat, okay? And you guys know those open freezers that sit on the floor in grocery stores, right? Well, there was this long open freezer right behind the deli counter, and I was just kind of walking around it. I was bored to death, and I'm just looking and picking up and moving stuff. And at one point, I came to this metal freezer tray. It was like a tray that would have held broccoli or frozen vegetables, and it's just sitting there empty. They hadn't taken it out yet. So I got a great idea as I was looking at this freezer tray. Like, one of my favorite movies and my all-time favorite Christmas movie is A Christmas Story. And in that movie, I learned that if you stick your tongue to something metal and cold, like, it'll stick. And so... I just saw this is a great opportunity for me to see if that really works using my kid brother. So I called him over, said, John, dude, you're never going to believe what I found. Come check this out. And so I call him over and I just say, John, why don't you stick your tongue to this metal freezer tray? Well, he was smart at first. You know, he's like this goofy little kid. I'm not doing that. You're crazy. It's going to hurt me. And so as a good big brother, I said, listen, I'll show you. I'll go first and show you that nothing happens, okay? And so I lean over, and I get really, really close. You know, I'm a foot taller than him, so he can't see. I get really close to sticking my tongue on this thing. I don't. And so, you know, he kind of is bought in now to the fact that he should probably do this too. So he's this short little kid, and I'll never forget him kind of climbing over the side of this freezer, I'm helping him, I'm watching, joy is welling up inside of my heart because of what I believe is about to happen. And so he's on the edge of this freezer and he's got his tongue just all out and man, he plops it down on that freezer tray and yes, it's stuck 
perfectly, right? And so I'm cheering, I am clapping, like, man, I'm waving band. This is an awesome day in my life. And so my kid brother, though, he goes into complete panic mode. His tongue is stuck and he has no idea what to do. And so he reacts like probably any little kid would. And he puts his hands on the side of that freezer and pushes back as hard. You know where this is going already. Um, pushes back as hard as he can. And the good news is most of his tongue made it back inside his mouth, but there was definitely some still left on the freezer tray. Now, I'll never forget, kid, he's running to my bomb. There's blood pouring out of his mouth. He's screaming. He's crying. I'm laughing. I'm cheering. <laughs> and we left Winn-Dixie that day with his tongue wrapped up in paper towels, and he's just telling me how much he hates me, like, the whole way home. So that was me as a kid. Listen, my mom, she chewed me out from the time we got in the car to the time we pulled in the driveway. And then when my dad got home that evening, it was like round two of punishment, and that was worse. Now, I hated being in trouble as a kid, but for whatever reason, like, it didn't stop me then from pursuing more trouble. Um, but now at this point in my life, and especially being a parent myself, I realized that my parents, who were really, really good about holding me accountable to my actions as a kid, like I realized now they were giving me a gift, right? Um, by holding me accountable to my actions as a kid who loved rebellion, loved disobedience, loved doing my own thing, loved being self-centered, like I realized that the gift my parents were giving me by holding me accountable to my actions is this, they were trying to move me away from living a life like that. And instead, they were trying to move me toward a life defined by selflessness instead of self-centeredness. They were trying to help me to live a life not of rebellion, but of respect for authority, wisdom, common sense. They wanted me to live a life where I actually cared about and was concerned for other people, not just myself. And so, listen, I believe today that God wants to move some of us in the room from that previous place I just described, that self-centered, rebellious, disobedient, do-my-own-thing place in life to a place in which we are pursuing selflessness, respect, honor when it comes to God, and genuine love and concern for other people. And the story that we're going to look at from Mark 11 today, we find Jesus with this same intention concerning a group of men who are leading the temple in Jerusalem during the time he was here on the earth. He wants to move them from living impure lives. And by impure, I mean selfish, self-centered, rebellious, disobedient. And he wants to move them toward lives defined by pure motives and actions, lives that actually help people and honor God. And so Jesus, he goes about moving these men from point A to point B, they're here to there in a very, very drastic and dramatic way. And so if you have your Bibles open to Mark 11, I want to show you what I mean, okay? If you don't have anything with you, all of this is going on the screen so you can read along with us there. Here's what Mark 11 says. We'll pick up in verse 15. And they, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple... And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him 
for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now, I want to set the scene for us so that we don't miss anything, okay? Um, it's Passover week. I told you that last week if you were here. And Passover for the Jewish people was a week-long celebration in which they'd travel into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the fact that hundreds of years earlier, God had freed their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. Now, part of being in the city of Jerusalem and celebrating Passover meant that you went to the temple and you offered up a yearly sacrifice as an act of worship and as payment for your sins, okay? So on the Monday of Jesus' last week here on the earth, he decides to pay a visit to the temple. And when he walks in, here's what he sees. He sees the temple set up like a marketplace, like a store, okay? There are people, temple leaders, uh, selling sacrificial animals to people who've traveled into the city to celebrate Passover. Now, they did this for a couple reasons, okay? One, they sold animals to people who may have traveled like long distances. You know, you travel 100 miles to go to Jerusalem. The last thing you want to do is bring your own lamb with you, right? That's a lot of trouble, a lot to keep up with. So you travel into the city, and when you got to the temple, you would just buy an animal from the temple leaders to offer up as your sacrifice. But they also sold animals for another reason. Here's the reason. Because when people brought their own animals into the temple for sacrifice, oftentimes the temple leaders told those people their animals weren't good enough. They would look at every single animal that anybody brought into the temple. They would inspect it. They would try to find imperfections, try to find blemishes. And if they didn't think the animal was appropriate or kind of up to par, they would tell the people, this is not good enough. You have to buy one from us. Now, there's the money changers table, right? And the money changers table um, served a very interesting purpose. You see, if you were a person who needed to buy an animal from the temple, you couldn't just like walk in with your dollar bills and use your own money to buy an animal. Like you'd walk in the door and the temple leaders would tell you, you have to use temple currency. You have to use money that's rabbinically blessed. And so what you can do is you can take your money, go to the money changers table, pay a fee to exchange your money for temple money. And then once you have temple money, you can go back over and you can buy an animal that we approve of so that you can make your sacrifice. And by the way, those animals were usually really marked up in price. So this is the scene Jesus walks into on this Monday in the temple. And church, how does he respond? He doesn't respond like some of us think of Jesus, like Hippie Jesus, you know, Jesus meek and mild, feathering his blonde hair and petting his sheep that he carries with him everywhere he goes. That's not how he responds, right? He walks into the temple and he gets angry. He gets so angry that he actually walks in and he flips the table of the money changers over. He goes over to where people are selling animals and he kicks over their chairs. He physically shuts down this buying and selling of sacrificial animals in the temple. Now, for those of us who are here going, that seems a little dramatic. Like, that seems a little over the top. I thought Jesus was always about the love, no matter what, no matter what anybody did. I mean, I get that they're selling and buying animals in the temple, but man, isn't it over the top that Jesus would go so far as to damage property and lose it on the temple leaders? What's the deal here? Here's what I need you to know if you're kind of wrestling with that question. What Jesus was angry at went much deeper than just buying and selling some animals in the temple. 
okay? There were some very impure practices going on in the temple that Jesus walked into on that Monday that he was seeking to cleanse the temple of. And I want to share these impure practices with you this morning so that you can see what made Jesus so angry. If you're taking notes, write this stuff down. First, one of the things that Jesus would have witnessed as he walked into the temple on Monday was people far from God being kept from him. Let me explain this. The marketplace that I described where all the money exchange and the buying and selling of animals was going on, it was set up in an area of the temple known as the court of the Gentiles. Now, the court of the Gentiles, it was the only area of the temple that Gentile people were allowed into. And by Gentile people, I mean non-Jewish people who were considered as people without any real type of relationship with God at all. So we would assume, I mean, it'd be awesome to assume that if that was true, that the Jewish people, man, maybe they would have turned this courtyard area for Gentile people into a place where they were waiting with free coffee and they were welcoming and they were happy for people to be there um, when the court was empty. Maybe it was an opportunity for the Jewish people to go and to pray and to ask God to bring people to them that didn't know him so that they could love on them and care for them and share him with them. But that's not what was going on in the court of the Gentiles at all. In fact, if you were a Gentile person, non-Jewish person, you walked into the temple, all you were going to find is shady business practices going on and people who said they know God ignoring you and brushing you off completely. You see, it was hard for a person who didn't know God to walk into the temple during the time of Jesus and to walk away with any kind of faith or belief in him at all. And this made Jesus furious. You see, what we see from this passage and Jesus' response is that there are few things that make Jesus angrier than when people who say they know God work hard to prevent people far from him finding their way back to him. That infuriates Jesus. That's why, listen to me, we'll never be a church that makes it hard on people who don't know Christ to find their way to him. It's why we want anybody and everybody struggling with life and questions and struggles and sin issues to come here. It's why we want to be the church in this community that accepts every other person into our gatherings that no other church wants. Because we want to provide a safe place for people far from God to come and to wrestle and to struggle and to ask and to seek and prayerfully to find faith in our God. Um, Next thing, next thing. Jesus would have witnessed the powerful exploiting the powerless as he walked into the temple. The powerful exploiting the powerless. Let's see how close of attention you were paying when we read, okay? What was the one animal Mark mentioned in Mark 11? Pigeons, right? Pigeons. Um, This is interesting why Mark would bring up pigeons. Out of all the animals he could have uh, acknowledged, he acknowledges pigeons. Here's why. Because pigeons were offered as sacrifice by the poorest of the poor in society. Like when you didn't have the money to purchase a lamb for sacrifice, you bought a pigeon. And so imagine maybe on this Monday, Jesus walks into the temple and there's a widow, a poor widow who walks in and she brings this pigeon with her and she walks into the temple and the temple leaders say, your pigeon's no good. You need to go to the money exchange table. And so she walks over and she's got to take what little money she has and exchange it for a fee and then go buy a pigeon approved of by the temple leaders. That's what Jesus walks into and it infuriates him. 
Like, we know from the scriptures that poor, powerless people are very, very near to the heart of God, right? I mean, we see that time and time again. We know Jesus himself was born into a very poor family. I mean, his mom was a teenager, dad was a carpenter. You see proof of just how poor his family was in Luke 2, when his mom and dad took him to the temple as a baby to dedicate him to God. Guess what Joseph and Mary offered as a sacrifice? Pigeons. You see, Jesus loves poor, powerless, defenseless, helpless people. It's why in the scriptures he tells us in Matthew 25, if we're his followers, that we should feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty and care for those who are strangers and take them in and clothe the naked and care for orphans and care for widows and visit the sick and visit those in prison. This is who he's called us to be as his followers. So when he walks into the temple... And he sees people in positions of power and authority taking advantage of those who are powerless and weak and poor and helpless. It tugs at his heart in a very interesting way. And he thinks the only appropriate reaction to seeing that is, I'm going to flip over tables and yell at some people. Like that's what Jesus sees as appropriate. So you have to know, man, Jesus, if we're going to follow him, um, abusing, ignoring taking advantage of, exploiting powerless people, poor people, defenseless people. It just can't be an option for us. The next thing Jesus walks into in the temple is this. Empty sacrifice excusing sinful living. Empty sacrifice excusing sinful living. Um, I think it's interesting in this passage, after Jesus flips the tables over and kicks over the chairs, he starts shouting Old Testament verses at these people in the temple. Like, if you want to know if a preacher's angry, like, if he starts shouting Old Testament at you, he's angry, right? And so Jesus, he goes Old Testament, and he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, and he reminds these men leading the temple that the temple, the most sacred space on the planet during his time, it's supposed to be a house of prayer, a place where people from all nations can come and gather to meet with God and call on his name. And then he starts shouting Jeremiah 7:11 at them, and he tells these men that they've turned the temple, again, the sacred space, into a den of robbers. He compares these guys to thieves who would go rob people and then hide out in caves for personal safety and to plot future crimes. And he's saying to them, you guys rob people, you treat people like garbage, you live how you want, and then you run to the temple and you perform your religious duties, and somehow you think it's all okay. You're you're like thieves, you're like robbers. I mean, Jesus is trying to get at these guys' hearts. He's trying to convince them that they are promoting a religious system by their own actions that communicate to people that they can basically live however they want and do what they want and treat other people like they want and use coming to the temple to offer a sacrifice as their excuse to live like hell outside the walls of the temple. You see, let me bring it into today to help you to understand what this might look like for us, okay? Like if Jesus was alive today, this might look like Jesus coming into one of our churches and finding a bunch of people who like show up to church every week, a gathering like this, And they sing songs and listen to the scriptures be taught and they pray and they maybe give a few bucks here and there and they take communion every once in a while and then they leave the gathering and they go out there and they just kind of do whatever they want, right? And their response, if they were confronted on it, would be, it's cool, I sang some songs on Sunday. Like, no, 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 it's it's fine, I was at the gathering and I gave a few bucks. It's cool, I, I took communion this week as if to say, because I sacrificed a little bit of time and maybe a little bit of money and a little bit of my voice for God, 
I can kind of do whatever I want out there and it's okay. You see, Jesus proves in Mark 11 that this mindset of I can live how I want out there and come in here and kind of turn on the church thing, he shows us that that mindset makes him furious. He flips over tables and kicks over chairs because men in the temple are leading with that mindset. So here's the question that we need to wrestle with. I want to bring us into this. What can you and I do to ensure that we don't end up like these men in Mark 11? Like, what can you and I do to ensure that we don't end up living lives as followers of Jesus in which we make it hard on people who are far from God to believe what we have to say about him is true? How do we ensure that we don't live lives in which we exploit or abuse or ignore poor, powerless, helpless, defenseless people? And how in the world do we make sure that we're moving toward lives that are not defined by a mindset in which we believe that we can kind of live however we want and just show up to church on Sundays? Like, how do we resist living in impurity and move toward purity? Well, um, I'm going to go Old Testament on you to answer that question, okay? I'm not going to yell at you. This is good stuff, so I'm not angry. This is good. Um, but there's this passage from Micah 6 8 that I believe helps us to answer this question perfectly. And this prophet Micah in the Old Testament, he was writing this verse that we're about to read to a bunch of people similar to the men in Mark 11. People who had no love or concern for other people, people just offering up empty sacrifice at the temple and it didn't really mean anything. And here's what he has to say to them, Micah 6 8. He says, he, speaking of God, he's told you what's good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You see, I believe that this last statement captures the answer to the question I posed perfectly. How do we prevent our, ourselves from living those impure lives in which we offer empty sacrifice, exploit powerless people, brush off and ignore those far from God because of our own selfishness and self-centeredness. Well, I think this is it. We do justice. We become people who love kindness and we walk every day in humility with God. Now, I, I want to expound on this so we get what this means, okay? So if you're taking notes, write some of this down. What does it mean to do justice? Well, biblically, to do justice means a couple things. First and foremost, it means that you and I, we live every day and we make right, honest, moral decisions that honor God. And we make those decisions based on what he's told us to do in this book. You see, I'll make it super easy. To do justice first and foremost or to act justly like some of your Bibles may say means that when you open this book and you read it or you come to a gathering like this and you hear it, that you actually walk away and you do what it says. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that you hear it and you go, I like that verse, I think I'll memorize that. I'm not going to do what it says, but I'll memorize it, right? It doesn't mean that you go, you know what, why don't we get some friends together and we'll meet and have a Bible study on what it might look like if we actually did what God wants us to do. It doesn't mean, it means that we hear it and we go, you know what, um, I want to live a life of justice and I want to make right, honest, moral decisions that honor God. So I'm just going to do what he says. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to live justly every day. So first and foremost, that's biblically what it means to do justice. But secondly, to do justice also means that you and I make right, honest, moral decisions that help people who can't help themselves. 
You see, that's also what it means to do justice. That's you and I, as followers of Jesus, that we act on behalf of those who can't act for themselves, and we do it because God's called us to do it. I'll give you a great example of this, okay? A few years ago, I was in this little country in West Africa that we as a church work in called Burkina Faso, one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, Yahoo Finance just came out with a study of the 25 most miserable countries you can live in in the world. Burkina Faso ranked third on the list. I mean, this place, I have never seen poverty like this, never heard stories like this. So we're there a few years ago to scout out new locations and new villages for clean water wells and churches. And we meet this pastor, his name is Pastor Jacques in his village called Kira. And he's given us the tour of this village. And so we started at his church and we walked through this village. And by the time we got back to his church, we had this crowd of people around us, parents, kids, teenagers. And I'll never forget standing opposite of these people. Here's Pastor Jacques in front of them, 100 people around him. And he looks at us, us people from America, and he says, we, speaking of he and his people, he said, we have no voice. And he points at us and he says, you are our voice. And if you don't speak, we die. Man, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I realized in that moment, this is who God has called us to be as his followers. As people who stand up and speak on behalf of those who have no voice in this world. He's called us to be people who stand on behalf of the broken, who become defenders of the defenseless and the helpless, who remain strong for those weak and for those broken. He's called us to be those people that actually do what he says for us to do in Matthew 25 to feed hungry people and to give drink to thirsty people and to clothe naked people and to take in strangers and to go visit those sick and in prison. We actually are supposed to be people, think about this, that take in orphans and widows. This is who he's called us to be in the world as his followers. And man, we do those things so that we can have a platform to share the hope of Jesus Christ with those people. And you see, we do it for a simple reason, church. It's because that's exactly what God's done for us. Like when we were spiritually poor and powerless and helpless and defenseless and weak and could do nothing for ourselves to change that, God sent Jesus. And he sent Jesus to act on our behalf, to forgive us of our sins, to give us eternal life, something we could never do for ourselves. And so listen, when we act justly on the behalf of others, we reflect the very character and nature of God to them and we give them an opportunity to come into a relationship with him. This is why we do it. So I just want to say this. When we act justly, here's what happens. We prevent ourselves from slipping into that mindset of I can treat people how I want, right? When we act justly and when people who are near to the heart of God become near to us, uh, we become those people who could never dream of abusing, exploiting, taking advantage of, ignoring poor, powerless people. And we never slip into that mindset that I can just live how I want out there and then come here once a week and shift gears. Now, I would say this before we move on. If you're sitting there thinking, James, how can I do that in an easy way, like act justly on behalf of others? Here's an easy way to do it. You can start right here where we live in your own backyard in Bartow County. We have homeless shelters. We have advocacy centers for children. We have battered women's shelters. We have food banks that feed people. You can go onto the city of Cartersville's website, cityofcartersville.org, and find all of these places here in our own backyard that offer help to helpless people. And you can jump in and serve and share Christ in a very real and tangible way with them. So start there. Um, next, 
Next, not only do we do justice, but we also love kindness. As followers of Jesus, we're supposed to love kindness. Some of your Bibles may say, love mercy. Now, this one's super easy, all right? Super self-explanatory. Easy to talk about, maybe a little bit harder to practice. But to love mercy and kindness means that as followers of Jesus Christ, our default concerning those around us should always be mercy and kindness. That when we look at people around us, our first choice should always be, I'm going to be kind to that person. I'm going to be merciful to that person. I'm going to love that person. That should be the default of our lives. Even people who are annoying to us, right? Don't think you're better than me. You know you got some annoying people in your life. Um, Even people that offend you, right? Like as followers of Jesus, we choose kindness. We choose mercy. We choose to hold back on giving those people what it is we think they deserve. That is mercy, Um, I'll give you an easy way that maybe some of us can shift uh, when it comes to kindness and mercy like this afternoon. Um, Anybody else like get crazy annoyed by Facebook? Anybody? Man, I I tell you, I've come close to canceling my Facebook about 180 million times with my wife. She won't let me because she wants to tag me in pictures and stuff, and so I keep it up. Um, But man, I get so annoyed when I get on Facebook and I see people who I know and Listen, if you don't know Jesus and you're here and you're just checking this church thing out for the first time, I'm not talking about you, okay? You can check out, you can ignore what I'm about to say. I'm talking people who claim to know Jesus, who say they know God. Like they get on Facebook and their posts start like this. Um, I know I'm about to, to offend some people, right? But, or they say uh, something like, this might cause me to lose some friends, but I'm gonna say it anyway. And if you don't like it, you can just go ahead and unfriend me. By the way, if you say that, I will just unfriend you, okay? Um, not really. I've never done that. But, but listen, I hate those statements because what it shows me is you're not thinking love, kindness, and mercy, right? You're thinking all those people in the social media world, they need what I'm about to give them, and they deserve a very offensive piece of my mind. So I'm going to put it out there, and I don't care who doesn't want it. If they don't want it, then they can take me off their Facebook page. I'm just saying, as followers of Jesus, like we can't be those people in any area of our lives. And why? Because God has put us here to represent him well to this world. And our God is a God of kindness and mercy. His kindness leads people to repentance. His mercy brings people to salvation. And if we're going to reflect him well in the world, we have to choose love and kindness and mercy concerning all people, even though it's really, really hard to choose it for. Um, Last thing, and then we'll be done. Walk humbly with God. If we want to be those people that resist living those lives in which we do what we want, live how we want, treat people how we want, brush people off that don't believe like us, act like us, and we want to live lives opposite of that, it takes us walking humbly with God each day. Now, to walk humbly with God, this is an awareness issue. And by awareness issue, here's what I mean. I mean that In order to walk humbly with God, you have to wake up each day and be fully aware that you are insanely dependent on who God is in all areas of your life, right? It means that you wake up every single day and you have this awareness that you're not God, that he's God, and that he's in charge and you're not in charge. It means that you wake up with this awareness each day that apart from God, you can do nothing and that you are Nothing, And when you live with this awareness that he's God and you're not, and apart from him, you're nothing and can do nothing, 
that's when you actually start to rely on him and depend on him for everything, right? Like that's when you run to him when you're making decisions. That's when you run to him when money stuff you're trying to figure out. That's when you run to him when relationship stuff is falling apart. That's when you run to him and you thank him that you actually have a place to live and a job to go to and a car to drive and food to eat because you realize those are all blessings and gifts from him. I mean, the opposite side of that is you can choose to walk in pride before God and you can wake up each day and go, God, I'm going to be in charge today. I'll be the God of my own life today. I'll do what I want today. I don't really need you because I've got this. I just want to say you got to be careful walking in pride before God because that always goes bad for you. If you remember back to the Simplexity series we just did in January, um, I told you that according to the scripture, we have the option to choose humility for ourselves. And if we don't do that, God will inevitably choose it for us somewhere along the way. So I'm just saying, man, it's way easier to choose humility and to be aware of just how much you need God so that he doesn't have to remind you of that himself. Uh, Let me go back to when I was a kid. Uh, One of the things that my mom would say to me in those moments when I was just acting like a complete moron she would look at me at times and say, just wait till your dad gets home, right? Like if you don't straighten up, when your dad gets home, I'm telling him everything you've done today. See, I don't know what it was as a little kid, like I always forgot, oh yeah, dad's gonna come home at like six o'clock at night. But when she reminded me of that, and she made me aware of that, like it made me straighten up. It made me wanna act differently and to act better. Um, I was reading and praying this week and studying for this message, and that thought like brought me to one of my favorite passages in the scripture out of 1 John 3, in which the Bible tells us that there's coming a day we're going to see our dad. We're going to see our heavenly father. We're going to lay eyes on Jesus Christ himself, the one our heavenly father sent to save us. And the Bible says something interesting in 1 John 3, 3. It says this, anyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. And so John's telling us, listen, if you have the hope of seeing Jesus one day, of seeing your dad, your heavenly father one day, the only way to get ready for that day is to pursue a life of purity. And why? Because God is purity. He is all the things we've talked about this morning. He is a God of justice. He is a God who loves the powerless. He is a God of kindness and mercy. He is a God of humility. And the only way to get ready to see him one day is by pursuing that same path. And so I just want to say to maybe some of us, um, maybe it's time for some of us to start thinking about us seeing dad on a more regular basis so that we can live the life he's called us to. And I don't mean that in like a scare tactic way. I'm just saying I want that to be a good day for you, all right? So I want us to do this. I'm going to invite Jacob back out. And I've asked Jacob to close us with a song this morning. And I don't care if you sing this song. Like I'd almost... Uh, just encourage you to sit and listen and pay attention to the words and use this as an opportunity to pray and to ask God to help you to do the things that we've talked about this morning. But this song captures beautifully this passage that we dove into out of Micah and just the call on all of our lives. And so uh, I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna let Jacob sing this over us. Father, we just thank you for being a God who loves us more than we'll ever comprehend. We thank you for being a God who's been kind to us, merciful to us, a God who humbled himself and became a man and came after sinful people so that we could be forgiven and that we could know eternal life. And God, we just want to reflect you well here in the world. We want to live lives 
of justice, of mercy, of kindness, of humility. We, we don't want to pursue impurity. We don't want to pursue disobedience and rebellion and selfishness because, God, we know that those are the opposite things of you. And so, God, help us, help us to resist pursuing a path that leads us to becoming those Mark 11 people. God, move some of us today from that place to a place of purity, to a place, God, where we can truly pursue you and live the life that you've called us to live here on the earth. God, we love you and we trust you for that. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.